You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone. Today on Faith for Normal People, I'm joined by our nerd in residence and friend of the podcast, Jennifer Garcia. Bashaw, welcome to the podcast again, Jennifer. It is good to be here, and I am really excited about this topic today. I was really glad to have you on for this episode in particular as we chat about dropping out of purity culture with our guest, Erica Smith. Yes, Erica is an award-winning sexuality educator and consultant with over 20 years of experience. Uh, She's provided comprehensive sex education and advocacy to young women and LGBTQ youth in Philadelphia's juvenile justice system. She's worked in abortion care, and she supported HIV-positive and transgender adolescents and their families. Yes, and in 2019, she developed the Purity Culture Dropout Program, which helps people learn of all the sex education that they missed growing up if they grew up in purity culture. I'm guessing not just purity culture. I'm sure lots of people, even outside of that, could learn from this program. So it's it's sex ed that's accurate, queer, inclusive, trauma-informed, compassionate, comprehensive. Now, don't forget to stay tuned after the episode for quiet time during which Pete is going to hop back on into the episode. And he and I are going to talk about our own experiences within purity culture and reflect how our faith has evolved since. All right, let's dive into this interview with Erica. Sexuality, when people hear that term, typically they think of the act of intercourse. But in reality, sexuality involves a lot of different topics. You also have to talk about things like gender roles, relationships, communication, sexual violence, sensuality, which is the experience of pleasure, the way that our bodies react, the fantasies we have. There's so much to think about in the umbrella of sexuality. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome, Erica, to the podcast. It is great to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope we get into a lot of really good conversations. Let's jump right into what is purity culture and where did it come from? So when I answer this question, I usually go back to a definition that Linda K. Klein included in the introduction to her book, Pure. If some of you may be familiar with that book, but it's an incredible kind of overview of the effects that evangelical purity culture has had on a generation of people. And she says that purity culture is present in all major world religions, and that is is a system of gender and sexual control. And so you can find it in religions other than Christianity. So that's kind of the broad definition. But the definition that we're probably most familiar with is 
how in America, in maybe the 90s and early 2000s, it grew into a movement and a movement that had a whole industry around it. So if anyone has ever read I Kissed Dating Goodbye or taken A True Love Waits Promise, those are some of the components of American purity culture. But it really relies on very strict gender roles and a very big emphasis on protecting the purity of women in particular. So I'm wondering, so full disclosure, uh, I was raised in purity culture as I was raised evangelical. So just so you know that, um, but, but maybe not all our listeners are. Um, I'm wondering how you got introduced to purity culture and its effects on the people who were raised in evangelical settings. Yeah, I love this question because I was not raised in purity culture. I was not raised in a family that was anything other than casually Christian. So, you know, church on Christmas. (laughs) And I have worked as a sex educator since about 2000. And so I observed from the outside how the religious right had a lot of political power in the United States and how that political power was used to create policy around sexual health and public health, especially in areas of like abortion and HIV. So imagine I am a young sex educator. I am actually working in abortion care. And I know that, you know, I am viewed as an enemy (laughs) by this force. But I saw as a provider, as a person that did the education and counseling, how damaging it was for the people that came in to seek services to not have the right information about sexuality. And then a little bit later in my work, I was doing HIV-related care and prevention for adolescents, and we kept losing funding because funding was going to abstinence-only programs. And so I watched all this from the outside, knowing that not having good sex ed was very harmful to people. But it wasn't until about 2018 when I started asking people, were you raised in purity culture? What is your experience? And I began hearing from people who were incredibly eager to have helpful and comprehensive and holistic sex education. And we're very forthcoming in sharing their stories about what not having that had done for them. And so that is kind of what got me to focus specifically on this in the field of sexuality. Well, I was also raised in purity culture. And you mentioned at the very beginning around gender roles. And I would say a lot of this conversation, I probably experienced this purity culture idea way differently just because of my gender. So I'm curious to hear what are some of those effects of purity culture? So we we talk about it and, and there's sort of already this maybe negative connotation, but could you just say more explicitly, what are the effects? How does it affect people's view on sexuality, sexual performance? What makes it detrimental? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the gender role stuff, Jared, because you're right that men experience it differently. It absolutely affects everyone of every gender. But I think that women and LGBTQ people bear a very different burden from purity culture. And those are the majority of the clients I see. And I will say that some of the things that I hear over and over and over range from actual physical difficulty with sex. So folks that have, for a lot of people, difficulty experiencing vaginal penetration because it is painful, because it is actually um, impossible. Some folks develop 
a physical condition like vaginismus, which is like a tightening of the pelvic floor muscles. And this can be brought on by fear and trauma around sexuality. It's also common in people that are survivors of sexual assault. So that's like a physical symptom. Other things that I hear commonly are fear and avoidance around sex, delaying their first sexual encounter for a very, very long time. And now folks are in adulthood and they feel like it is a burden that they have never dated or had sex. There is a lot of ignorance around bodies, anatomy, physiology, how bodies function, a lot of ignorance around things like sexual health, because there's a lot of fear mongering in purity culture, like you are absolutely going to get a sexually transmitted infection. So there's a lot of um, kind of cleaning up that misinformation that I do. I also hear from people that they are feeling very deep shame around so many things that involve sex, whether it's masturbation or just their bodies in general, or maybe having to talk to their children about sex, or wanting to be the partner that initiates sex. I also hear of folks who are just like, I don't know what I like. I don't know what I want. I don't know how to begin experiencing this. I don't know how to figure it out. I don't know how to talk to other people about it. So it's kind of like purity culture leaves this black hole of mystery (laughs) around sexuality, but fills it with fear and paranoia. And from the men who I do work with, I hear that a lot of them feel very worried that they are going to harm someone, like they are afraid of finding someone attractive, they're afraid of expressing that, they're afraid of initiating sex, because they were taught that all of that is very objectifying, and that their sexual urges are something that are just to be feared. So those are some of the things, and that's definitely not an exhaustive list. So it seems like purity culture affects people in so many different ways, physically, emotionally, psychologically. Uh, How do you address all those different facets um, when you work with people who have been raised in this culture? Yeah. So my role is a sex educator. I am a person who has a master's degree in education, specifically in human sexuality. So I'm not a therapist and I'm not a clinician. So I get right to work figuring out what the topics are that folks want to know about and what they feel like their gaps in their education are and provide them with a nuanced and complete education on those topics. We also do a lot of deconstruction of values. So I will ask them, like, you were told to believe this about sex. For example, that monogamy is the only option. Do you actually believe that? Why do you think that? What might be underneath that belief? Do you feel any differently once you've received this information about it? So there's a combination of education and also really looking into the cultural context around their beliefs about sexuality. And I also do refer them to other necessary services that aren't in my wheelhouse. So for example, if somebody says they experience pain with sex, We will find them a gynecologist or a doctor in their area that I think would be a good fit, and I will give them a script on how to talk about that. Or if they're sharing things with me that make it clear that they do require some kind of trauma therapy, I will work with them to locate a therapist in their area who can address sexuality issues in a very broad way that doesn't involve like a Christian influence. So that's a pretty good example on on what I do. 
A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So something that keeps coming to mind is this, you know, phrase that knowledge is power. This education piece, because one thing I'm thinking of are a lot of women that I, I've talked to, it's that they experience some sort of discomfort. And that could be on a, a spectrum to, you know, I don't want to, it's not a minimal thing. Sometimes it's extreme pain, but some kind of, something's not right. Like something doesn't feel right. Something hurts. Something is not, I'm not experiencing you know, it doesn't feel healthy, but there's this shame around it. So it's not like there's a lot of access to like go and just talk about it or even to admit or acknowledge these things. So do you experience that? And sort of what are ways that we can help? Because again, I guess what I'm really trying to say is I feel like this knowledge is power is a key idea. And it's hard to get people to find answers to their questions when they're discouraged from even asking the questions. Oh, absolutely. And I would say that beyond the scope of Christian purity culture, we we live in a society that doesn't always take women's pain seriously. So I have worked with clients who feel they've experienced discomfort with sex, pain with sex. They finally work up the courage 
to speak to a doctor about it. And many times they are dismissed or their pain is downplayed. I have heard stories of women sharing this, you know, with doctors that hurts when I have sex or, you know, I feel like my partner cannot penetrate me successfully. And doctors will say things like, you just need a glass of wine, or you just need to loosen up. So there's this, not just the shame from the purity culture teachings, but also this you know, real sense of like, oh, it's just not that big of a deal if a woman isn't experiencing her sexuality in a positive, pleasurable way. And that like adds a whole other barrier. Well, and to that, I feel like that's the deep narrative of purity culture, which is comes from this very patriarchal theological system that privileges, you know, male pleasure over female pleasure. Can you maybe speak to that? Because I think that's part of this bigger narrative of maybe why we are more dismissive or don't take seriously that when women are able to communicate things. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, there's, there's like a new take on purity culture, which is worthy of talking about where it's like writers and theologians are like, Oh, we were a little too strict in the nineties. We do think that pleasure is okay for women, but you have to be married to experience that. But, you know, if we're talking about the purity culture that most of the people I work with were raised in, you know, people that are in their 30s and 40s, there was never a mention of pleasure for women. And one of the areas that I see that the most in is lessons about masturbation or cautionary tales about masturbation. Young men will learn you should not masturbate, you know, it is very wicked, it is very sinful, and young women are given silence on that. So I've I've worked with clients who told me I didn't even know that women could masturbate until I was in my 20s. I did not know that I had a clitoris or what a clitoris was until I was in my 20s. So the focus on men's pleasure is is almost less of a focus and more it's like we just acknowledge that men can feel pleasure. Well, not acknowledging that women have that ability at all. Wow. So I'll admit that was me. I was one of those people who did not know that women masturbated. Yeah. I was in my 20s. And so, I mean, I think about that, just the practicality of that. And what are what are some practices that you would give to people, especially women, to help them work towards a positive and healthy sexuality? That is such a good question. And when I think about that task, I always wish that I could just like snap my fingers or wave a magic wand and like make that relationship flourish for a woman in her sexuality. But it is unfortunately a long game. It is something that requires patience and something that requires, you know, like action and diligence on the part of the person. So, One of the things that I suggest people start with is focusing on pleasure as a concept. What did you learn about pleasure? Not even just sexual pleasure, but were you told that indulging in delicious food was bad? You know, what messages did you get from your family and your community about experiencing things purely for the pleasure of experiencing them? And there's a lot in that for a lot of people. So then I start suggesting, I want you to think about pleasure and accept the fact that people deserve it for no other reason other than for the sake of pleasure. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to feel bad if you partake in it. And then I ask people to start noticing all of the little ways in their lives that they might experience pleasure or seek pleasure that aren't even necessarily sexuality related. Things like 
you know, the feeling of sitting in the sun or the feeling of, I go back to food because food is a big one. You know, it's very, very related to appetites and sex. So just I ask people to really pay attention to pleasure in other ways and then start to think about sexual pleasure, their relationship to that. And can they access that and begin to not feel as bad or like it is something they need to atone for when they do? So it's really not an easy answer. That attention to pleasure, I think, has been really helpful for me. And so thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners, because I'm, I'm hoping that that will also help them as well. Maybe we can take that a, a step further, because I kind of want to talk about this for a little bit longer. It is related, and I think it's so good, because, you know, the messaging that I received a lot, and I've heard a lot in evangelical, fundamentalist evangelical circles, is that actually God wants us to suffer, that it's it's not always a message you know, whenever I'm suffering or I feel pain or discomfort, that's not a message that things aren't good. It can actually be, we can be taught to rewire that message to feel the opposite, that suffering is good. It may be actually God's will for me because, hey, following after God, a life of following Jesus does bring suffering. And so, sometimes the suffering is the path to we need to follow the path of suffering because that's what leads to God and that's what leads to right living. And so you're almost taught this insidious way of not trusting your own body with those messages that suffering's our body's way of telling us that something's not right. And we're sort of taught theologically that suffering is actually teaching us that things are right. Can you speak more to that in, in this concept of pleasure? Oh, for sure. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, like I said, I wasn't raised in a evangelical family. So it's like always a good reminder for me. I learn so much from the folks I work with. And that isn't just, you know, you saying that right then is like, oh, that's right. Like, I have heard that from people. And it's so hard to ask someone to kind of make friends with their body and to trust their body and to listen to their body. If they were taught those lessons that suffering is is not a big deal and it's actually good. So that right there, I think that takes deconstruction beyond just wanting a different relationship with your sexuality. That takes some, you know, deconstruction of like theological teachings that really aren't in my wheelhouse. But I think a lot of the work I do with people around sexuality leads to them asking larger questions, or they come to me when they've already started asking those larger questions about the things they were taught. Well, in some ways, what I hear you saying is you can't really decouple those because, and that's why I appreciated the way you started it, is to talk about sexuality is to talk about things like pleasure, and that will take us outside the bounds of just sexuality, because you can't you can't change your views on sexuality in this larger sense without also changing your views on other things. Yeah, so many other things. Um, sexuality, I want to highlight that when people hear that term, typically they think of the act of intercourse. They think about sex as an action that happens between people. And it's like, you know, a person's body part goes in this other person's body part, and that is sex, and that is sexuality. But in reality, to give people education and information around sexuality involves a lot of different topics. And the reproductive aspect, like the physical act of sex, is just one of them. You also have to talk about things like gender roles, relationships, communication, sexual violence, 
sensuality, which is the experience of pleasure, the way that our bodies react, the fantasies we have. So there's so much to think about just, you know, in the umbrella of sexuality. So I hear you saying that this is a long journey because um, for people who are raised in purity culture, there are ideas that need to change and practices that need to change and feelings. And I affirm that because I'm still on that journey. But um, I would also love to hear a little bit of hope. Like I would love to hear about your, your purity culture dropout program and like what kind of changes that you've seen occur in the lives of people who've participated in it. Yeah, I love this question because it's really one of my favorite one of my favorite things to talk about. So, beyond the folks that have participated in working with me directly one on one, I also get a lot of really wonderful feedback from my Instagram audience. So, I will get messages every once in a while from folks that tell me, you know, I just had a wonderful sexual encounter for the first time, and I feel like. It might be weird to tell you this, but that you were absolutely part of that experience. Um, In fact, I received a message like that from a guy actually yesterday. And I don't know this man. He's just somebody that follows my account. And he said, you played a large part in me being able to reevaluate and scrutinize my own sexual ethics post-purity, post-divorce. So it only seems right to tell you this. I had a delightful, connected sexual experience with someone devoid of shame and baggage, and it was amazing. And I was just like, I love getting messages like that. And so he goes on to say, in two decades of marriage, we struggled to engage so directly. It was a bit surreal, but clear communication, eliminating expectations ahead of time, and being honest were great additions to desire and arousal. And I hear those stories often from people. Other success measures are folks who maybe have never had sex before and they are late. They're what they would consider late in life virgins. I know that, you know, that's that's all relative, really. But they'll say, like, I had sex for the first time at age 40 and it was a great experience. I was very connected. You know, nothing bad happened. And I just really appreciate the guidance you provided me. Other success stories I have seen are folks who sometimes actually end up leaving the relationship they were in. And I never tell people to do that. But I will often work with women in particular who, in unlearning all of the shameful and kind of patriarchal messaging about sex, they realize that the the relationship they're in does not support this kind of new sexual ethic that they have. Um, Those are just some of the stories off the top of my head, but I get messages like that all the time. So there is definitely hope. And is there some specific like recurring, the only word I can think of is aha moments, like recurring aha moments of people coming out of, you know, this fundamentalist evangelical subculture now, as they as they come out of that, one example would be what you said, Jennifer, aha, like, Women can masturbate. I didn't know that until I was in my 20s. Are there other things that you hear often that are aha moments for people? Yes. One of them is if I point this out to someone, they're often like, oh my gosh, you're totally right. A lot of folks are so uncomfortable with a partner finding them desirable because they immediately equate being desired as being disrespected. Or they are very afraid to express their attraction 
to another person because they have been taught that to be attracted to someone is to be disrespecting them or to maybe be tempting them into sin. So that's something that a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that those two things were connected in my mind. Yeah, that's good. And maybe if someone did say that, like, how do you help them uh, work through that? Like, what's a maybe a healthier way to think about that? Because I do think that resonates with me. Like, desiring someone can feel disrespectful. So I feel like there's some good impulse in that, but there's also some maybe not great impulses in that. So can you unpack it a little bit? Yeah. So what I would usually start sharing is, you know, the mechanics of arousal and desire. We don't really control what we find hot. (laughs) Um, We can look at someone and our brains and our bodies might respond. And I don't think that's something that is inherently a problem. It's just like, oh, wow, I just saw that cute person in the grocery store and I found them attractive. That to me Well, not just to me, but that is such a human, normal behavior. We are animals. We are on this planet to mate with each other. So if we find someone attractive, and if our body responds to that, I do not think that that is inherently harmful. Where it could become harmful is how we approach someone else with that message. So I actually, um, I've taught a class on sexual communication. And one of the things I share is like how to communicate your desire. And I believe that there is a way to do it that is not creepy. You know, the the term creepy, I really mean like that you're coming on to someone in a way that's disturbing to them. And you can communicate your attraction and desire to someone in a way that's not aggressive. And that gives that person the choice about whether or not to engage with you. So, You might not be able to control like, yeah, that lady is really cute. I want to ask her out. I want to talk to her. And you don't need to control that because that is just a human impulse to find another person attractive. And the way to make that remain harmless is if you do decide to communicate that to somebody, say like, I'm interested in dating you. I'm interested in taking you out and giving them the option about whether they want to do that or not. What is harmful is when we make our desire for another person their problem or make our desire for another person kind of like immediately known to them and not giving them the opportunity about whether or not they want to engage. For example, if you catcall someone on the street. But I think that it's it's really harmful to believe that purely finding someone hot, having fantasies about them, thinking about them in a sexual context is bad. I do not believe that those very human impulses are bad. I think that we have control over how we present them to people. And that is kind of where the difference lies. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So on the flip side of kind of avoiding desire or to be desired. I think I also grew up with uh, messages in purity culture that objectified me, you know, over-sexualized me. And I'm wondering, you know, how you combat those, especially when you're talking about people who are getting that from a faith context. Yeah. So would you explain a little bit more about like what uh, messages you mean in particular? Yeah. So a lot of the little activities that we did growing up in youth uh, ministry talked about how they would talk about us covering our bodies and how women had to not be a stumbling block. But in in those messages, they taught they were actually sexualizing, over sexualizing us, you know. And that and so I just I, I wonder, you know, how you do you encounter that with some of the people you work with, and, and how do you talk about that? Oh yeah, so that would be another area where I would want to look directly at the values they were taught and deconstruct those values. Like, for example, the idea that it is your fault if somebody finds you attractive, um, you must cover your body at all times in service of modesty so that you don't tempt someone. So I will ask directly, like, what do you think of that value? Um, How do you think that value kind of hangs on in your life now? And there are folks that will say, like, I still don't even know what I like to wear, what is actually me and what is actually like leftover from modesty culture. But again, it's it's something that will require experimentation and getting out of your comfort zone. For example, I worked with a woman once who said, I wore shorts to the grocery store and I was shocked that nobody seemed to care and that men weren't like freaking out. <laughs> so it, it can take like, you know, a little bit of trying new things, um, seeing how you feel in those new things, reminding yourself that like, regardless of anyone else's perception of your body, it is your body to do what you want with and to adorn as you like. And if somebody's respect for you is contingent on what you wear, then they already don't respect you that that's like a baseline. Thank you. That is empowering and helpful. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And maybe we can say a little more because I I keep coming back to you you started with this idea of control as built into the definition of purity culture. And there's maybe you can help me sort this out because I I don't have all the pieces together. But there's this sense in which there is like an implicit understanding that you need to control your thoughts and feelings, which is broader in evangelical subculture than just sexuality. That's an assumption that we can do that, that we need to control our feelings. And if we don't, if we have certain feelings, that's sinful, even depression, because you should be able to control that. You should be able to be happy, right? Like, just don't be sad, be happy. Oh, okay. And so there's a sense that we should be in control of our feelings. And then when we can't, that's very shameful. Like, you do, you're doing something wrong, and then there's also this sense that we, women in particular, at least the messages I heard, were in control of men in a lot of ways. Like, 
if you dress in a certain way, like men can't help themselves. They're not really in control of their own bodies. You have to really regulate that for them. And so there's this insidious irony that it feels like all the messages of control were, the way I would say it is women were given all of the responsibility with none of the authority. Oh, yeah. And when I hear things like that, I am like, why are we acting like men are little babies who have no control over themselves, yet they're the ones that we are trusting to lead? You know, we're trusting them to be the head of our communities and households, yet in this one area, we have to be like, oh, no, he just can't help it. And sometimes even just pointing that out and asking folks to like comment on it goes a long way in deconstructing the idea that they're responsible for men's sexual thoughts, feelings, and actions. They're like, wait a minute, that actually is like really, really backwards. And I would honestly think that more men would be upset with that teaching as well, because it paints men as just buffoons who are, you know, thinking with their penis. And it's just, it hurts everybody, not just women. So as we wrap up our time, we've talked some about the practicalities and some about some of the impacts that your program has had for people. Could you maybe leave people with, they're just now, this might be the first time they're really coming to be aware of the messages that they received and starting to think about the impact that that has had on them. What would you say are some good next steps, you know, besides reaching out to you and and hiring you to coach them? But what are some things that people can maybe do on their own as far as that very first step? Because I know it can be scary to have that light bulb go on to say, oh, you know what, maybe this is impacting me more than I thought it was. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this one. And I think the first thing I would encourage folks to do is you can't fix all of this at once and you might be raring to go, but it is a long process. And I would encourage people to not create a new standard for their sexuality that is on the opposite end. So you do not have to, for example, become a different version of yourself in order to heal from purity culture. Not everyone who deconstructs these ideas and who learns more about sexuality is going to, you know, decide that they're really into having casual sex and they're really into, I don't know, all kinds of like kink things. Some people land there naturally, but there's no one place that you have to land if you start evaluating the role of purity culture in your life. You don't have to like casual sex. You don't have to be, you know, somebody who would make certain choices for yourself. And I mean, like certain kind of like liberal sexual choices for yourself. I think one thing to remember is that being more positive about sexuality is less about what you like to do sexually and more about your attitudes toward everything. So, do you think that other adults should be able to make decisions about their sexuality? As long as everyone is consenting, it's nobody's business. That is a really positive way to view sexuality. But that doesn't mean that you have to go and do all kinds of things that are completely unappealing to you. I do see some people kind of thinking, well, you know, I'm just like a I'm married and I'm monogamous and, and I really don't want to be any different. And I'm like, you don't have to. Undoing purity culture harm is, again, not about embracing all kinds of sexual practices that are really aren't you. It's about like finding out who you really are underneath all of these teachings and deconstructing the values you were taught, 
learning more about the basics of sex, and also um, starting to talk to other people in your life is a big one. I know some folks are like, I've never talked about sex to anyone, but I would encourage you to try to like start those conversations like with your friends. Yes. And we are almost out of time, but I, this has been such an amazing conversation and helpful and empowering. And I just want to thank you so much for your work personally. And then I know that our listeners will also be changed by the things that you've taught. Um, I wonder if you should have a, um, a little mantra or a motto changing lives, one orgasm at a time or something <laughs> like that, because I just really feel like you are changing lives. Thank you. I love, love, love doing this. Um, it's just, I don't know. I feel like a, I know I'm a guest in the space of ex evangelicals and I know that I'm not someone who has been raised in this community. So it does feel like I feel very honored that I get to facilitate this kind of work and facilitate these kind of transformations because I'm, I'm always aware that like, you know, everyone's trusting me and letting me in from the outside. Yes. Well, you are always welcome in this <laughs> ex-evangelical space. Thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you so you. much, Erica, for coming on. We appreciate it. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. All right. Well, Jared, one uh, ramification of the conversation you had with Erica is you talked about trusting one's body. So what does that look like for you trusting your body? Yeah, I think there's a few things I think about whenever you ask that question. One was this is an area where I'm so grateful I was a terrible evangelical. Because I think uh, the assumption was like, you can't trust your own body. You can't trust your own feelings. And I'm just not built that way. As much as I probably said, I didn't trust my own body and stuff. I don't even know how to do that. Like it is my personality. You don't know how to not trust. I don't know how okay. to not. Like, it's just, I'm right. my own authority. Like you're not the boss of me. That's just wow. sort of, that's, okay. that's how I've been since I was a young tyke. So it didn't really affect me in the same way that I think a lot of, for certain, a lot of women, but a lot of people in general. But also just, uh, yeah, I think on top of that, like being in tune with my own body has always been very intuitive to me mm -hmm. and very important. So I often do, I think sometimes uh, in sort of like meditation circles or mindfulness, they talk about body scans where you're like, mm -hmm. pay right. attention to what's going on in your body. I feel like I do that naturally a couple of huh? dozen times a day, okay. just checking in, like, wow. does everything feel good? Is everything working right? So I think I got lucky to be honest in that, and I had this whatever it was, my genetics and my experiences as a young person with my parents or whatever, that those messages didn't really sink in. Hmm. How do you well, relate to that trusting your own intuition body? Yeah, I mean, piece? that's the thing. I mean, not, not to blame my parents for all of my problems. Well, at least most. As they say, if you've had parents, you need therapy, right? So, But, you know, the thing is that, you know, I'm... 62. My my father had he lived to be over 100 by now. You know, it's just it's a different world. I grew up somewhere between not even being connected enough to even think about trusting your body or like you're saying being aligned with it and con it's just it didn't happen. Or if something was coming up, it was shame based mm -hmm. and not. It's just you just don't. The fact that you don't talk about it means there's some sort of shame element there. You know, and these, I mean, sexuality, these were non-topics right. in my house growing up. Absolutely non-topics. Like, why would you ever talk about mm -hmm. that, right? But it was never said. 
Right. It was more caught than taught, you know, and, and I understand. I mean, I understand my parents, where they came from and the war and Europe and all that kind of stuff, you know. But um, so it, for me, it's something that I've only become more conscious of, I have to say, probably midlife, mm-hmm. you know, in my mid late 40s is like when I was really starting to think, even just checking in with your own body and what is it doing? Now I'm very conscious of that, like... I have an emotion. What's my body doing? And that's a very important inner dynamic that I have now, which I'm very thankful for. Okay. So speaking of, of parents, why don't we, maybe we're going to parent our younger self for a second. So if you could go back in time and educate yourself about just your body or sex or any of that, what are some of those things that have become, this is another way of saying it is this, what's become more important to you now that you wish you had known when you were younger? Gosh, so much. I think I'm not suggesting that I did this well with my kids. So let me go back to my own life. Right. Back, you know, back yeah. when I was a little guy. That it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really quite simple. I remember just moments, which I won't get into, but just me having some type of, like a comment about a girl or someone of the opposite sex. And it was clearly discomfort in my family to say to myself, I, mean, I can't change my parents, but I can change me and say, it's okay. What you're feeling or thinking isn't wrong. And it's, and, and it's not like it was wrong for my parents. It's just, yeah, it, it wasn't, more didn't like, seem like it was moral as much as cultural. Yeah, that's really what it was. It wasn't moral. Like you're dirty, dirty, dirty. Right, it, it was, was more, more like, just like, this we is don't really talk uncomfortable. About this. It's very uncomfortable. And the question is, why is it uncomfortable? But to maybe try to give the little guy a sense of the importance of fostering a different mentality as you grow up. But that's hard. I mean, obviously that's don't be affected by your family of origin. Good luck with that one. Right. So, (laughs) you know I mean? It's just, but it's, you know, I go back and I do, I, I have thought many times actually in my adult years, how some of my choices in life might've gone differently had that ease with, my own body in all aspects of it, if that would have been something that was um, nurtured. Mm -hmm. That's the word I'm looking for. Not taught, nurtured. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, I want to say mom and dad, if you're listening up there, nothing against you. You did the best you could. You survived the war, you know, the big one, WW2. So it's, it's, I I understand, but you know, that's why you keep learning, right? That's why this is a good question. We have to keep being in touch with ourselves and changing paradigms and breaking through these ceilings and things like that. So, yeah, I I think for me, the main one that I would, if I could go back and and hopefully I've done this with my kids, they would know better whether I've done this well or not, but it's to take sexuality out of the category of morality and put it into the category of wisdom. Ah, yeah. And that's been a big thing for me is I don't use, I mean, in general, I don't use categories of right or wrong about anything, but especially not around sexuality. We're not going to talk about what's right or wrong, except for, Areas of like non-consensuality, yeah, coercion, yeah. power yeah. dynamics, that right. kind of thing. But in general, we talk about it in terms of wisdom. And so there, you know, there are risks. Yeah, there's just different factors as to when it's a good decision to do certain things. And that's in all areas of sexuality. So that's been more of my approach. And that's what I would have gone back to tell myself is say, just, don't worry so much about it in the realm of morality. Because mm-hmm. that would have been, again... I grew up right smack dab in purity culture that we talked about in the episode to the point that, you know, I went on a purity retreat and we wrote letters to our future spouses and talked about how we were saving ourselves for them in all of these ways. And 
again, some of that's maybe not necessarily bad in and of itself, but all of the messaging around it, bringing it into morality and it sort of was the, we, we see it, I think, in terms of like LGBTQ inclusion and conversation in the church. It's almost like we highlight that more than anything. Like sexuality is highlighted in so mm-hmm. many ways that makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we pick that and sort of amplify it as this thing that will ruin your life or it's the worst thing you could right, do is right. mess up in these areas and it makes no sense. So that's that's for me what it would be is is to take it out of morality, put it into wisdom because it creates so much anxiety and worry and concern. I mean, sexuality is is worrisome as an 11 and 12 year old yeah, anyway. Sure is, you don't yeah. need the like, and if I mess up, God's going <laughs> to hate me right, right. Um, forever. So that I think has been uh, what I would say and hopefully what I've done with my kids. All right. Time will tell. Cool. All right. Well, folks, there you have it. There you have it. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way. If you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub.